Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this is going to be a, a new challenge for me. So uh, when I'm speaking to this half of the room, just know that in a second I'm going to come back to this half of the room, and then when I'm speaking to this half of the room, know that I'm going to come back to you in a, in a little bit. So I don't want anybody to feel like they're getting ignored this morning. You know, uh, four years ago, I came up in the middle of the service, and I said, if there was any doubt that God was still active in the world, just take a look around. And it's still true. It's still true today, four years later. For some of us, four years has gone by really quickly. For others of us, four years has gone by really slowly. For some of us, this last four years have been the best four years of our life. For others of us, it's been the hardest four years of our life. And then for the rest of us, somewhere in between. But I think it's on the occasion of a birthday that it's nice to kind of look back. I, uh, I don't have any children, and so uh, I feel pretty confident in this analogy. But uh, this kind of feels like I'm celebrating the birth or the, the birthday of a child. Because as your parents know, and as I can imagine... That when you, when you have a child, when you bring this child into the world, you have all of these hopes and dreams about who they might be, of the things that they'll do, of the ways that they'll be like you, and hopefully the ways that they won't be like you. And that's true for how I feel about this church and us as a community of people. All the hopes and dreams that I've had for who would we become and the ways that some of those things have come to pass and the ways that uh, this place has become more than I ever could have hoped it to be, ways that my hopes and dreams for this church fell far short of what God had planned for this place. And the fun part about celebrating a birthday is that the story's not over, that it's just a continuation, it's just a moment to pause, to look back, and to reflect. So as you have already seen and been told, before we opened this church, we came and we wrote prayers and scriptures down on the floor and hoped that as we laid the flooring on top of these prayers and scriptures that it would be symbolic of the ways that we were creating a foundation for this place that would be unshakable. A foundation for this place that would see us through trying and difficult times. Now four years ago, of course, we didn't imagine that we would be in, what, month 19 of a pandemic and the ways that it has upended and changed the world. For over a year, no one was in this place. I was like the worst televangelist ever for about 12 months. If you watched online, I, you know that that was true. It's just, it's a really weird sensation to speak to an empty room and to a camera hoping that somewhere on the other side, the people are listening or paying attention while they're making breakfast and folding laundry and all the things that I know that you did while we were remote. It's okay, I did it too. It's, I, I was, so what you don't know is, you know, we would record in advance, and then when the service would broadcast and play on Sunday morning, I would just pace my living room, just like I just couldn't sit still and watch it. And I was, and so they say that um, as pastors, you should watch recordings of your sermons because you will either get better or quit. <laughs> I don't know if I've gotten better, but I'm not planning on quitting. So we'll see what happens, but. It has, it has been interesting to see all of the changes and all of the things that have gone on the last four years. Um, one of the prayers that I wrote before this church opened is right underneath my feet right now. And let me read it to you. 
It says, Lord, fill this place and these people with your spirit. Move and work in miraculous ways. Make this church like the early church in Acts and make each of us like your son. That was one of my prayers because I knew at the time all that I didn't know. There's not a a kind of a handbook that they give you when you're asked to start a church. Like step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do that. And as you can see this morning, it's like, well, yeah, duh. Because there's all sorts of things that can happen along the way that you're not prepared for. Learning who the people are, contextualizing ministry to the needs of the particular community that you find yourself in. There's no, there's no rules, there's no guidelines, and even the ones that seem, to be, that seem to exist, kind of the conventional wisdom, isn't always accurate, isn't always true. And so, the prayer that I wrote underneath my feet, knowing that I would hopefully stand in this spot on Sunday mornings, that there would be some type of osmosis that would happen, is that God would make this place like the early church in Acts. And there's a reason for that. The early church in Acts, as we've been talking about over the last several weeks, was as close to the time of Jesus as possible. And there are some things that I think that they understood that over time have, you know, kind of not been forgotten, but they have lost their centrality in the way that we do church. As things continue on and evolve and change throughout the centuries, they come in contact with the cultures of the time and shift and change and evolve uh, around the world around it. And over time, it's like a bad game of telephone. What, whatever words you started with by the time you get to the end of the circle oftentimes is some type of distortion. And I think in ways that can be true about the early church. And so the hope of kind of the last several weeks has just been an opportunity to remind ourselves about the things that are important about the ways that they went about living out their faith in relationship to one another and the people around them in the hopes that we would be reminded of what we're called to as well. If you look through the book of Acts, and hopefully you're still reading along with us, but the last chapter is chapter 28. And what you realize is that at the last verse, the last chapter in the book of Acts, there is not a conclusion there's no ending. There's no, and that was the end of the story. There's no happily ever after. And the reason for that is because the story is not over. The story is still being written. The story is something that we still participate in today. Thousands of years later, we're still continuing this tradition, this inheritance, this heritage of being people who are called to live in the example of Jesus. And in the same ways that the early church kind of stumbled and struggled to figure out what that meant, we do the same thing. We have our own challenges, our own issues. Some are similar, some are, are different. But the hope would be that, just like this prayer, that we would be a church like the early church. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning looking at some of the first descriptions of the things and the ways that the early church um, acted, the way that they lived out their faith some of the characteristics that existed about them. So we have been kind of moving chronologically through the book of Acts. We're going to jump back to the second chapter because the second chapter is when the Holy Spirit comes and fills all the people and that kind of marks the beginning of the church. And then, starting in verse 42, it starts to describe what happened after that moment. And so I want to look at that this morning. Now normally we have it on the screen. 
But you're going to have to do some work this morning um, because we didn't think we'd have a screen outside. So open your phones. If you have a Bible, open that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And if you don't want to do that, I will read it for you. So this is kind of the description about the early church. The early church that the hope is that we will continue to emulate. In verse 42, it says, The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I want to stop there because this was a different rhythm than what existed in their life. This was a different rhythm than the rhythm of their Jewish heritage and their Jewish faith. And this word devoted is, uh, speaks to that commitment to a new way of doing things. It was not we just continued with business as usual. We didn't just continue with the way that we have grown up. We made an intentional set of choices that reflected a unique set of values and priorities that translated into an ethic, to a code of life, to an intentional lifestyle that was centered around a couple of things that were really important to them. And so this marks a shift in kind of the day-to-day life of these people. And so what it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They continually found opportunities to learn, to grow, in what it means to live in the example of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, your translation might look a little bit different. It might say to the fellowship. There might be a comma there. But really what I want to point out is that this idea of their devotion to the fellowship was not specific to their devotion to the specific community, although that was true. The way that this actually reads in Greek is that fellowship is the byproduct of the things that come next. So another word might be community. Community is the byproduct of the devotion to two things, breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what the early church did. They came together and they shared meals. Now, there have been kind of inferences made upon this passage that maybe it meant specifically communion, but that it does include that, but it's not limited to that. The very first church services were just communal family gatherings. It was like if you had a dinner party at your home, it would be this opportunity where people would come into contact with each other. They would spend time together around a table, sharing lives with each other, talking about their faith, Um, having conversations, sometimes arguments as we do over the dinner table about what it means to follow in the example of Jesus Christ. This is the very first worship services. Now, over time, obviously, these shifted and evolved and morphed, but that's part of the reason that we try to create intentional opportunities to feed you, to bring food into the equation because there is something deeply intimate and deeply personal about sharing a meal with somebody. For some of you, that's kind of the way that you best get to know people. You say, hey, we should take the so-and-so couple out to dinner, or we should, we should invite so-and-so over for a meal. It's this unique opportunity to kind of develop relationships with people. It's like this accelerator program for relationships, sharing a meal together. It's the same thing that's true for families. Parents, you know this. Studies have confirmed this, the importance of sitting down and sharing meals together. They've done all of these studies that kind of Compare and contrast uh, the health, the happiness, the effectiveness, the success of children and families who eat together and who don't eat together. And the evidence is overwhelming, the impact that having family dinners have on the well-being of children. 
The same is true of people, of any type of community, independent of the dynamics of the relationships. And so the disciples, these original followers of Jesus, these first, this first group of Christians, they committed to this idea of sharing life together. And I think that's one of the things that we often, that we often miss in kind of our version of Christianity is this was a daily thing that they did. Now, I'm not trying to kind of suggest that we should have worship every day of the week because we know how that would go. But it is a reminder that this wasn't meant to be a once a week for an hour rhythm. There was something continual. There was something daily about this process of living and sharing life together with other people. And the other thing that they devoted themselves to was the, was the prayers. And Allie spoke a little bit about why this is important, how prayer should be the foundation of our life, how prayer is the foundation of this church. You see, we were designed for two primary relationships, relationships with others, which is what was covered in the daily meals, and then relationship with God, which is what's covered in prayer. That's the way that God designed us, to be in loving relationship with the people around us and in relationship to God. And so that was the foundation of the early church. They committed themselves. They devoted themselves to these practices, this way of life, this routine, every single day. And then, because of that devotion, because of that commitment, it had an impact. It had an effect. And this is what it says. A sense of awe, of wonder, of amazement, of surprise and, you know, incredulity came over everyone. I think the reason for that is because in our day and age where we have moved towards greater and greater levels of complexity, we have forgotten the truth that sometimes the most and the simplest things are often the most profound. You see, there's oftentimes when you're kind of navigating an idea or working through some topic there's like this ignorant simplicity that you first come in contact with. So you, maybe you're hearing these ideas about kind of the devotion to the meals together and the prayers. You'd be like, that's too simple. That won't work. And then as you kind of navigate these ideas further, there's kind of a, like a cumbersome complexity that you come into with simple ideas. And then on the other side of that complexity is profound simplicity, this overwhelming, unbelievable sense of the depth and the significance of such a simple idea. If you've ever come in contact with somebody who's an expert in a field and who's a really incredible teacher, they have that ability to make simple things simple again, taking into account all of the ways that it's far more complicated than the simplicity that we often come in contact with. This is what happens when we take these simple practices and we devote ourselves to them, there's this profound impact on our lives. This is what happens. So it continues on. It says, God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. Ways that people's lives were transformed, changed, miracles, if you're comfortable with that language. And it says all of the believers, they were united of one accord and shared everything. And then it goes on to kind of explain kind of what this looked like. It says in verse 45, they would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Now, some of us have taken this passage to use it as evidence of like kind of this first century socialism. That's not, that's not what happened. 
but the acknowledgement and the awareness was that people were deeply aware of the needs of the people around them. And the way that they viewed personal property was that it was a gift that they were stewarding on behalf of God. It's this idea that they understood that they were blessed to then be a blessing to the people around them. They were temporary stewards of what God has given them. And so they had the eyes to see and the ears to hear the needs of the people that they were sharing life with. That only comes when you're in constant relationship with people. The awareness of the needs of others only comes when you're in constant contact with them. It's too easy to kind of go weeks or months without talking to somebody or having a conversation with them. And when you do that, there's a distance that's created that you're no longer able to be aware of the needs that they carry. This community, this community had a profound awareness of the ways in which the people around them were vulnerable. And they took care of the vulnerable population. The widows, the children, the orphans, the marginalized and oppressed. That's one of the things that I'm proud about for us here at the Grove is the ways that we are trying to pay attention to the people around us. Whether it's raising money for the men of Nehemiah and the work that they're doing in South Dallas, rehabilitating men, or whether it's the money that we've raised and the hours that we've logged serving food to our neighbors at the beginning of kind of this COVID shutdown, or the ways that we gather gifts for the birthday party project as they serve children who are experiencing homelessness. It's important for us as a community of people not just to be focused on our relationship with God, but to understand the way that our relationship with God transforms into how we take care of the people around us, particularly the most vulnerable. And then in verse 46, it talks about how every day, it's an echo of the of verse 42. It says, every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They share food with gladness and simplicity. See, what happens when you eat together regularly, when you share in that practice, when you come together to talk about life, to talk about the struggles, the successes, the failures, and all of the things that you can celebrate, is it creates this sense of community, this sense of family that didn't exist in the first century. I think today that's probably, again, what's needed most. I think in our culture, in our context, we are struggling with loneliness on a level that maybe we aren't aware of. I think there's an, an epidemic of loneliness in our world. We're more connected than ever before, yet the sense that we have is nobody really knows us. Nobody really understands us. Nobody really sees us. And I think that the church is the place, the church is the community that can end this loneliness epidemic. It's an opportunity for us to come together, to be reminded that we're not alone, to share in our struggles, to share in our successes, to share in a meal together that knits us back together into a community and into a family. I think it's how God intended this to work. Jesus models this all through his life. He's constantly inviting people into relationship with him and in to meals together. And then it ends this way, in verse 47. It says, they praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. There was a marked difference in their life. There was an effect of the choices that they were making 
of the code of life that they were living in, of the ethic in which their life was founded on. It had an impact, not just in their life, but on the people around them. People were able to see their actions. People were able to see their deeds, and they were able to acknowledge that it was God's goodness working through them as a conduit. And then it says in this last, last sentence, and the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. And this word saved, particularly in this first century context, is not just this simple understanding of what happens after you die. It was far deeper. It was far richer and far more profound. Yes, it has uh, a tone of forgiveness. It has a tone of redemption. It has a, a tone of salvation. But this word save really is deeper than just a spiritual level. It's physical. It's emotional. It's relational. That word salvation is where we get the word salve from, as in something that you would place on a wound or an injury. It has this understanding of healing. It has this understanding of wholeness. And so another way to read this last verse is the Lord added daily to the community those who were being made whole. And as I think back on the last four years, the stories of the individuals and the families who have walked through these doors and sat where you're sitting, who have engaged in the life and the rhythms of community, of sharing meals and of praying together and of doing life in the example of Jesus, this is what I see. I see all of these stories of ways that people are being made whole, relationships that are being mended, marriages that are being healed, parental relationships with children who are being strengthened, ways that families are being knit back together, ways that we're being freed from kind of the chronic hurriness and busyness of our society, ways that we're being reminded of a different way to live, different priorities and values around how we spend our time, how we spend our money, who we are in life with, our relationships, all of these stories. It's, it's amazing to me to think about all of the ways that people are being made whole here in this place. And that's why we gather, that's why we celebrate, to acknowledge all of the stories over the last four years of ways that God has made us whole and is continuing to make us whole. And so as we kind of plan to kind of conclude this service, I want to do it in a, an important way. I'm going to invite the band to come back out as they lead us in a song. And this is a song that acknowledges kind of God's faithfulness in our lives. Um, as the band leads us though, I just want you to maybe spend some time reflecting on God's faithfulness in your life. I want you to spend some time reflecting on the ways that maybe God has made you or a loved one or your family or your marriage whole again, ways that God has, has brought healing into your life, not just on a physical level, but on a spiritual and on an emotional level. And as you reflect on God's faithfulness, as you reflect on the ways that God has been adding daily to the community, those who are being saved, when you're ready, if God has done something in your life over the last four years, through this church, through your relationships with these people that has brought healing and wholeness to you or your loved ones, I just want you to stand. 
So I hope as the band sings this last song that we'll spend some time acknowledging God's faithfulness. And then as you feel led, that you'll stand in acknowledgement of God's faithfulness.